invite you to take your Bibles. You can turn back, if you'd like, this morning to Ezekiel 38. Told you we were going to have one more sermon as it relates to Gog and Magog. Last time we were together, we began exploring the Bible's teaching on Gog and Magog, an exploration that was rooted in the mention of Gog and Magog in Revelation chapter 20, verse 8. Indeed, outside of Ezekiel 38 and 39, there is only one other mentioning of Gog and Magog, and that is in Revelation 20, verse 8. Gog is presented there as enemies of God and of Israel, uh, presented also in Ezekiel 38 and 39 in that light. To this end, we spent last week, or, or two weeks ago, last time we were together, um, walking through a good portion of the teaching in Ezekiel 38 and 39 on Gog and Magog, with the intent that we would be able to fully understand the nature of the reference, to the extent we can, that we see in Revelation 20. And Revelation 20 becomes our anchor point, but we'll also see as we walk through a few more subjective things today that that anchor point um, is perhaps not the whole story. And we'll see that as we walk through our text. We found last week, however, that Gog is the leader of a region perhaps called Magog and is said to be the chief prince over Meshech and Tubal. From the very basic study that we did in the Table of Nations, found in Genesis 10, uh, combined with a little bit of Josephus and some of the other uh, Greek historians, we were able to generally identify a number of the nations that were mentioned in Ezekiel 38, and to identify where, generally speaking, they were from. So we identified Gomer and Magog and Meshech and Tubal, if you recall. Gog is said to be from the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Um, we see perhaps then a confederacy. Perhaps even that Meshech, Magog, and Tubal became one nation over time of three descendant groups. And we said that they characteristically uh, lived in the area around the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. And most certainly that we were talking about an area that was north of Israel and north of Assyria, north of Syria, north of those regions uh, that would have been well known in the day. The people groups that we might understand to be generally the Ukraine and Russia. Then we added other nations that were listed in this confederacy uh, in Ezekiel 38. We talked about Persia, which is modern day Iran, and we talked about Ethiopia, which still exists, and Libya, which still exists, and Gomer, which is generally understood to be a combination, uh, through a combination of studies, to be the people groups of, of Georgia and Armenia. Uh, we talked about uh, Togarma, which is said to be of the north quarters, perhaps that northern region of the Black Sea. And what we found is that this confederacy of, re of nations represented every direction around Israel. And I told you last, last time we were together, and I, I, I do believe this, that far more important than the actual identity of Gog, of Magog, of Meshech and Tubal and Torgama and, and, and Gomer and all of these is an understanding that Israel will be beset by her enemies on every side and that there will be a, a when this attack comes that it will come from every direction there will be no place to flee there will be no direction to run they will be beset on every side by their enemies now that being said 
world history, geopolitical affairs render the teaching of Ezekiel 38 and 39 more interesting than perhaps ever. And to this end, we are going to attempt to answer two questions today. The first one, perhaps more rooted biblically, which is when will Gog and Magog, the events that we read about in Ezekiel 38 and 39, happen? We know when the events of Revelation 20 will happen, right? They're going to happen at the end of the Millennial Kingdom when Satan is loose for a time and there's a deception of the nations and then they come against Israel. So we know that. We know that there is that, that element. But the question is, is that... Is that the time that we're reading about in Ezekiel 38 and 39, or is there more to the story? And that's what we're going to study first. Once we're finished with that, then the second question we're going to ask is who? Who is Gog? Who is Magog? And that one is significantly more subjective uh, as we dig into some evidences there. Perhaps through some modern geopolitics, study and self-awareness, we can uh, find some interesting answers. So, question number one, when? When is Gog and Magog? Well, several important words and concepts come up in Ezekiel 38, which help give us some context and, and some manner of understanding as it relates to when Gog and Magog will come up as it relates to the nation of Israel. Recall last week in Ezekiel chapter 38 verse 8 the Bible says this, after many days thou shalt be visited, in the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and it continues. So God places the context of these events when God will as he says in Ezekiel chapter 38 verse 4 put hooks into Gog's jaws and compel him to come against the land of Israel, he places this context within the, the, state, the statement after many days and in the latter years. Now, any time in the Old Testament or New Testament where you read that phrase, latter days, it should cause you to perk your ears as it relates to prophecy, prophetic Context. Characteristically, we've seen a, uh, the phrase latter days going all the way back to the book of Numbers. And then all the way certainly through the prophets, the major prophets, the minor prophets, Daniel, Hosea, spoke much of the latter days. And we saw it to mean a time that, that was surrounding the final elements of God's program with Israel. The latter days, the last days of God's dealings with the nation. What we would understand to be the time period surrounding the day of the Lord. Remember, as we studied the day of the Lord, we said that the day of the Lord really comprises several different contexts within Scripture. There's the day of the Lord proper, the second coming proper, when the Lord physically returns. We also have seen ample evidence that the day of the Lord can consist the entire 70th week of Daniel. And we also have evidence particularly from the New Testament, that the day of the Lord, that, that the, the period that's known as the day of the Lord spans all the way through the millennial kingdom and even to that time that we read about a couple of weeks ago in Revelation 20 verses 7 through 15 of the final rebellion against God. That all of this, there is a general context that, that we would call the day of the Lord. And, and the latter days oftentimes speaks toward that end. Now in Ezekiel 38, 8, this is the only time that we have the phrase the latter years. To that end, we can't be as dogmatic. Is the latter years used the same way as the latter days? We might assume it to be true. There's no reason not to assume that the latter years would speak of the same time as the latter days. And yet, since this is the only time in Scripture where we find this unique phrase, um, we can't be as dogmatic about such things. However, we would 
perk our ears nonetheless when we read this phrase, the latter years, when we read after many days, we would perk our ears to the idea that what we're dealing with here is prophetic toward the last days, toward the end of things. And as we're considering Gog and Magog, therefore, we are going to be considering Gog and Magog within the context of the latter days, the day of the Lord, whether that be sometime within the 70th week, sometime within the Lord's return proper, or sometime within uh, the, the end of the millennium. Now, what other evidences do we have? As we continue here in verse 8, the verse 8 tells us that Gog will be going into a land that is characterized as a land brought back from the sword and gathered out of many people. So we have the regathering, right? We have a time that where there was war, where there was sword, and they are brought back from that, and they are brought to a time where they have been regathered. Of course, those of you who are following along in our Jeremiah series, we understand full well the promises of this regathering. All throughout the Old Testament, the promises that God is going to regather, not just Judah, but the northern tribes of Israel. He promises it in Isaiah. He promises it in Jeremiah. He promises it in Ezekiel. He promises is that he is going to bring the nation of Israel back together. And we see here a time within this context where the, the land, that would be, of course, Israel, is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people. And then he says, is brought forth out of the nations and they shall dwell safely, all of them. And so we are speaking of the mountains of Israel there. I don't have that highlighted, but you see that the mountains of Israel are the context brought forth from many nations and dwelling in safety. So we know that it will be a time when the regathering has taken place. We know that it will be a time when the nation rests in safety. What other hints do we get? Verse 11 of Ezekiel 38. Verse 11 tells us about more about the safety in which the land will dwell. It will be a time when the nation and its villages will operate without walls, without bars, or without gates. In September of 2000, Israel built a wall along the West Bank in order to uh, thwart terrorism. They had a terrorism drop of about 98% after this wall was built because of the Palestinians and their terrorist support for Hezbollah. The wall is 440 miles long. Naturally, this is one of any number of security features that Israel has in place. If you ask most people, they'll say Israel is a, a very secure place to be. It's because they've got this big wall. It's because they've got um, their, their um, rocket defenses. It's because they have these things. They are safe, but they are certainly not dwelling without walls, without bars, without gates, are they? We are looking toward a time when the land of Israel will be in such security, not just safety, but security in that safety, that there will be no walls in the land, there will be no bars in the land, there will be no gates in the land. Uh, they will not need these things any longer. When Gog is compelled to unite this confederacy against Israel, he will see a very easy target that, that have yielded the defenses that would normally make up a nation's defense. Now, when we combine these facts with the reality that we see Gog and Magog come up in Revelation 20 as it relates to the events following the 1,000-year reign of Christ, there can be very little doubt that the fullest description of Gog and Magog is at the end of the millennium. Right? The millennial kingdom will be defined by peace, will be defined by this regathering. That is the very essence of the millennium. 
There will certainly not be no need for walls, be no need for bars, be no need for gates, because the land will be absolutely at peace, and it will have been so for 1,000 years. So there is no contradiction between Revelation 20, verse 8, and what we see as it relates to the, the, the early characteristic or the early nature of Ezekiel 38. The millennium will be this time of peace and prosperity. It will be a time of regathering. And so there, there is this element of the description, but this isn't really the end of the story. All throughout our prophetic teachings, we have learned about dual prophecy, right? Dual fulfillment. The idea that there is some prophecy in Scripture that has a, a, a minimal fulfillment in history, and then it has a fuller or, or greater fulfillment in a later, at a later date. And we've talked about many of these before. We've talked about Antiochus Epiphanes and Antichrist as that type-antitype relationship, right? When we talk about the abomination of desolation that Daniel promises in Daniel chapter 9 through his vision of the Lord, that abomination of desolation did take place in history in 164 B.C. through Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV. However, when Jesus is speaking to his disciples... Some 200 years later, he says to them in the future tense, when ye see the abomination of desolation sitting in the temple, which means Jesus told them it has not yet been fulfilled. And so though we had a fulfillment in history, that was just a minor, it was a minimal, it was a, it was a shadow fulfillment of a greater fulfillment that is to come. And is it possible that as we talk about Gog and Magog, that there might be a, a smaller, a shadow fulfillment that will, will characterize what, what will eventually be the fullest realization of Gog and Magog after the millennium. We have to stay anchored in the fact that Revelation 20 verse 8 tells us Gog and Magog will exist after the millennium and they will come against Israel. We have to stay anchored there. But that doesn't mean we can't make allowances for something we see so clearly in Scripture in our interpretive principles, which is dual fulfillment. Which is the idea that a prophecy, a single prophecy, can have a near and a far fulfillment, can have a partial and then a full fulfillment. We can also talk about Elijah. Remember, Jesus said specifically that Elijah had come because Elijah had to come before the Messiah. And yet there is still this real possibility that that, that, was a, that John the Baptist as Elijah was a partial fulfillment of a greater fulfillment that will come in the 70th week of Daniel. In much the same way, as we read through Ezekiel 38 and 39, there are things that will trouble us as it relates to this prophecy, connecting it to the time after the millennial kingdom. Or at least it troubles me. I don't know if it'll trouble you. Maybe it won't. Uh, and that's fine. But it troubles me as I read these things. How can I fit this into an understanding of Gog and Magog, of all of the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39 happening after the millennial kingdom, happening within this time period of rebellion just before the eternal state? And it doesn't necessarily make sense. And to show you that, I'm going to read a little bit more of Ezekiel 39 today. We stopped last week, or last time we were together, we stopped in verse 12 of Ezekiel 39. I'm still going to skip a couple of verses. I'm going to pick up in verse 20 and read through verse 29. 
remember that um, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, we were reading of the character of Gog and of, of, of this invasion. Skipping the few verses that I'm skipping this morning, um, I'll give you a bit of context. God promises in chapter 39 to utterly destroy Gog and Magog. He says that it will take seven months for the people of Israel to bury the bodies of the slaughter when Gog and his allies are destroyed. God then calls the birds of the air in a description which is very similar to what we read in uh, relation to Jesus' second coming in Revelation 19. He calls for the birds of the air to come and to feed on the flesh of great men and of kings, saying that all those great men will be destroyed on that day. And so we pick up, beginning in verse 20, and the Bible says this, Thus ye shall be filled at my table with horses and chariots, with mighty men and with all men of war, saith the Lord God. And I will set my glory among the heathen, and all the heathen shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid upon them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord for their, uh, their God from that day and forward. And the heathen shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they trespassed against me. Therefore hid I my face from them and gave them into the hand of their enemies. So fell they all by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions have I done unto them and hid my face from them. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, now will I bring again the captivity of Jacob and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel and will be jealous for my holy name. After that they have borne their shame and all their trespasses whereby they have trespassed against me when they dwelt safely in their land and none made them afraid. When I have brought them again from, their, from the people and gathered them out of their enemies' lands and am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations, then shall they know that I am the Lord their God which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. But I have gathered them unto their own land and have left none of them any more there. Neither will I hide my face any more from them for I have poured out my spirit upon, uh, upon the house of Israel saith the Lord God. Now we read a fairly unremarkable passage in many ways here, especially for those of us who have been walking through Jeremiah together on Sunday nights. God promises that his judgment upon his enemies will redound to his own glory, and this is not a new concept. But there are some things within this judgment of Gog that don't seem to be fully consistent with an end of the millennium, imminent entrance into the eternal state type context. And what I mean by this is that within our broader timetable, we find as we'll continue next week into Revelation chapter 21, that the millennial kingdom is the last hurrah. We have the millennial kingdom, then we have the rebellion. That rebellion is the final push. It's even what we called it, the final rebellion. And then the history of history is history, right? After this, the eternal state begins. Following the millennium, there is complete judgment. Death and hell are cast in the lake of fire. Uh, Satan is cast in the lake of fire. The beast and the false prophet are already in the lake of fire. All the unbelievers will be cast in the lake of fire. Whosoever is not found written in the book of life will be cast in the lake of fire. And then the eternal state begins. And so if this is the case, then we have some interesting things here. By the time the millennium is happening, Jesus ruling and reigning over Israel in righteousness, people having been regathered. Everything mentioned in Ezekiel 39 is not really in question anymore, is it? 
why God sent Israel into captivity to begin with, why God sent Israel and scattered them among the nations, all of that is kind of already settled in the millennium as we would understand it. And so the idea that at the end of the millennium, Gog and Magog are going to come against Israel, and this is going to prove once and for all that God was righteous in his judgments of Israel and in the judgments of God's enemies and Israel's enemies doesn't really make complete contextual sense. All Israel should already know everything that verse 22 through 29 says by that point. We've mentioned also the promises of Jeremiah 16 and Jeremiah 23. I've mentioned it several times both in the Jeremiah preaching and in Revelation preaching that in both of those chapters God says that He is going to fundamentally change the character of Israel from being characterized by the redemption of e from Egypt to being characterized by the regathering from the north and the redemption from all of their enemies. Now it's possible, it's possible that this characterization could, characterization could be completed at the end of the millennium, but it would seem far more likely that this would be done at the Lord's second coming, when he redeems them, when he has regathered them, and then when the millennial kingdom starts and he is ruling and reigning over them in righteousness. That seems like a far more plausible time for all of these promises and prophecies of of. God and, and the relationship between God and Israel to come to pass. Which makes it very curious that verses 25 and 28 would speak about how all the nations would know that God had brought them out of this captivity. And not all of this is fully consistent. To that end, we wonder if maybe there's another event beyond the one which will take place after the millennium, which we know happens. That's our anchor, right? Revelation 20, verse 8 is our anchor Gog and Magog still exist at the end of the millennium. Gog, and Magog, Gog of Magog will come against Israel at the end of the millennium. We know that that's going to happen. But perhaps there is a second time where we might see this event take place in history. And this leads us back to the book of Daniel. Recall from our past studies that Daniel 10 and 11 spend their time telling us primarily about the events that will take place during the period between Malachi and Matthew. It's about a 400 to a 450 year span that we would call the intertestamental period. And within that time period, a great deal of things happen. When Malachi leaves us, uh, the nation of Israel is very small. They have just come back into the land not too long ago, and they are under the thumb of the Medo-Persian Empire. When we flip open to Matthew chapter 1, Israel is quite established. They have a functioning temple that is grand. The Sadducees and the Pharisees are, are Pharisees particular, are running the place. The Pharisees didn't even exist in Malachi. The Sadducees didn't even exist in Malachi. And we have Rome as the top dogs. Medo-Persia no longer exists. So there's a lot that happens between Malachi and Matthew. And Daniel's chapter 10 and 11 give us about 250 to 300 years of that 400 years or so uh, in its context, in its prophecies. So we find, following the revelation of 
these things. We, we trace it through history. And the end of the revelation that Daniel gives as it relates to the history of this time is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. All of the history that Daniel gives from the Medo-Persian Empire to the Grecian, Grecian Empire to the Roman Empire, uh, not, not even quite to the Roman Empire, just to the Grecian Empire, and then it's split into the four empires after Alexander the Great died. All of that is given prophetically to lead us to one particular man, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And his historical desecration of the temple in 164 BC, an event that we consider, that we call the abomination of desolation. Now, after this event, Daniel 11 continues, but the text takes a shift where we're talking about this man who's called the king of the north, who we know from history to be Antiochus IV Epiphanes, and then all of a sudden, the description of this man takes a turn away from history. The, the historical context of Antiochus IV no longer reflects what Daniel 11 is saying about this king. And so we begin reading in Daniel 11, verse 30. And this part does speak to Antiochus Epiphanes. The Bible says, For the ships of Shittim will come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved in return and have indignation against the Holy Covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant. And arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and shall place the abomination that make it desolate. This is when we're seeing the merging of events with Antiochus, with someone that we would not know about except that we've already done the study and we believe it to be Antichrist, right? So the ships of Chittim, that was the Roman Empire facing off against Antiochus, which we know happened in history. And Antiochus left from that engagement very upset, and he ends up taking out that anger on the nation of Israel, on the city of Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount, and doing what we call the abomination of desolation. This brought about the Maccabee family and the rebellion, which would chart the course of Israel unto this day as it relates to orthodoxy and purity of the faith. So all of that, however, corresponds to Antiochus. We continue reading in verse 32. And such, and such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries, but the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. So we see this division in the land of Israelites who apostatized, Jews who apostatized and followed Antiochus, and those who would stand for the, the truth of God's word. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many, and they shall fall by the sword and by flame and by captivity and by spoil many days. Now when they shall fall, they shall be holpen with a little help, but many shall cleave to them with flattery. So all of this corresponds nicely to the historical events of Antiochus. But it's in verse 34 when we begin to see the prophecy looking beyond the man who lived in the 160s B.C. We continue reading in verse 35. And some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. Notice there how we just have a prophetic marker, a cue, that we're going beyond just 160 B.C. to the time of the end and a time yet appointed. And this is where we would see a dramatic shift to now we're talking about who, through our studies, if you followed it, to who we know as Antichrist. 
Verse 36. And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper. This sounds just like the eleventh horn of Daniel, doesn't it? The one who will speak blasphemies against God. And shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that that is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces, and a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many, and shall divide the land for gain. So some of these things certainly do apply to Antiochus as far as him being a blasphemous man, but many of them do not. As it relates to him not worshiping the God of his fathers, Antiochus was uh, very Hellenistic. Uh, he, the abomination of desolation even consisted of him erecting a statue of Zeus in the temple, so he did not abandon the God of his fathers. Uh, he did not abandon the, the love for women. He did not abandon these things. So we're seeing things that don't apply to him, but we can cope with that because we saw that prophetic phrase talking about the last days. In verse 35, the Bible says some of understanding would fall to try them and to purge and to make them white. Speaking of those in Israel who would oppose this man until the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. Now, following this, we have a prophecy. And this is the prophecy that I'm getting to. All of that was context. Let's get to the prophecy in verses 40 to 45 of Daniel 11. And at the time of the end. So all of that was speaking toward the time of the end. At the time of the end, there's our prophetic marker again, shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. Now this is interesting to the, because to this point in, in the text, Antiochus was the king of the north. And we could still possibly interpret it that way. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But it seems more linguistically likely here that we're talking about a push from the, a king of the south and a king of the north against him. That would be this king. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. Let's continue reading. He shall enter also into the glorious land and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab. And the chief of the children of Ammon, he shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape, but he shall have power over the treasury, treasures of gold and of silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him, therefore he shall go forth with a great fury to destroy, to utterly make away many." And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. So here's an interesting thing happens. The Bible says at the time of the end, the king of the south would push Adam and the king of the north would come against him. I mentioned that there are two prophetic possibilities here. It could mean that the king of the south will come against the king of the north and then the king of the north would respond with a fury. That would be, of course, Antiochus. Or it could mean that there's a king of the south and a king of the north who both press against this man, this one who would be king, and then he would go against both of them. And what we find is that mentioned along with the king of the north in this time in the end are some familiar names here, that he would conquer Egypt, 
but that the Libyans and the Ethiopians would be at his steps. The Libyans and the Ethiopians are names mentioned as confederates with Gog of Magog. To this end, many believe that Gog of Magog is this king of the north who will actually perhaps function in opposition to Antichrist within these last days. Now, if the king of the north is Antiochus and is Antichrist, then Gog of Magog is Antichrist, at least prior to this, the millennial kingdom. He can't be Antichrist after because he, Antichrist is already in the lake of fire. You see why there's some interpretive messiness here, which might cause us some concern. But the way the text is written, most interpreters today, and I would tend to agree with them, believe that there is a king of the north, there is a king of the south, and that they both press against Antichrist in this time. And if so, then this king of the north, who is confederate with Libya and with Ethiopia, and who sees a time when there is a vulnerability in the land, wouldn't make sense that this would be Gog of Magog. So if this Daniel 11 king of the north is Gog of Magog, then we would find a conflict within the scope of the 70th week involving Gog, which would better perhaps fit the teachings of Ezekiel. In other words, that Gog of Magog might be this king of the north, which is operating at the same time as Antichrist in the 70th week of Daniel. So just briefly, let me run through the various theories that people have as it relates to when Ezekiel 38 and 39 are going to happen. There are some, and this is becoming a little bit more popular due to geopolitical issues of the day, there are some who believe that Gog of Magog will take place prior to the 70th week of Daniel, that it will actually be the event that ushers in the 70th week of Daniel. This seems unlikely to me. Because a scenario, now of course history can change on a dime, right? But the text speaks of them being a regathering, and the text speaks of there being peace in the land established prior to Gog and Magog, right? We, we already established that from Ezekiel 38. It seems unlikely, at least right now, geopolitically, that a full regathering and absolute peace will take place in the land prior to the seven-year peace treaty that the prince that will come, Antichrist, makes with Israel. That seems unlikely. To that end, right now, at least, as we understand geopolitics, this one doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Now, the characteristic dispensationalist view, the view that we would characteristically hold to, is that these events will take place generally around the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel, just prior to the abomination of desolation. This would account for there being peace in the land, right? Because there's a seven-year peace treaty that the prince makes with Israel, and he abolishes that peace treaty at that midway point. So there would be a three-and-a-half-year window where Ezekiel 38 would agree with, Dan with the 70th week of Daniel. That would be the, the, that three-and-a-half-year window of peace in the land. Geopolitics being similar to what they are today, that would all make sense. It would also account for the further associations with God's redemption that would kind of throw us off at the end of Ezekiel 39 because all of that redemption has yet to take place because that's going to take place at the second coming proper. This in many ways seems to be the most rational place to put Ezekiel 38 and 39 with the only exception being of the elephant in the room, namely that the only time it's mentioned in the Bible outside of his 38 and 39 
is in Revelation 20, verse 8, after the millennium. Now, the third theory is that Gog will take place around the same time as the second coming proper. We talked about the fact that it's possible that when all of the armies of the earth gather together to Megiddo, to the valley just off of Megiddo, to that, that valley of Jezreel, and Jehoshaphat, uh, to the, those two valleys, um, that it's quite possible that they're coming to fight each other, not just to fight against Israel. And if that were the case, of course, we know that the Tigris and the Euphrates dry up, making way for the kings of the east to come. And then a confederacy of Gog and Magog with uh, Ethiopia and Libya and Iran um, at that same time would perhaps make sense as well, except for this. That after the abomination takes place at the midpoint of the 70th week, we would not expect that Israel is at peace any longer. Israel is fleeing for their lives at that point. That's what Jesus told them to do in Matthew 24. When you see the abomination of desolation sitting in the temple, flee. Flee for your lives, he says. So it seems strange that Ezekiel, that, that if, if Gog is up there in Magog plotting and God is going to put a hook in his jaw and draw him to a land where there are no walls, where there are no bars, where there are no gates, a land that is dwelling at peace and safety, that that would characterize the second half of the 70th week. That doesn't make sense. That, that, that's not the character of the second half of the 70th week. So this is why characteristically understanding the, the elements for what they are, we've placed Gog of Magog, perhaps the first fulfillment, if we want to call it that, within the, the end of that first half of the 70th week of Daniel. And then, of course, we have the final theory, which is just that Gog of Magog is after the millennium. We know that that's our anchor point. We can be comfortable there if you want to stay there. I think that um, there's enough uh, unknowns in Ezekiel 38 and 39 for it not to be too uncomfortable for us simply to rest in that. So that's what, or when, excuse me, that's when Gog of Magog will happen. Give you some thoughts there, let you come to the conclusions on your own. The second question is significantly more subjective. What, where is Gog and Magog? This is the question everyone loves to ask. It's the question that kind of fascinates historians and theologians alike. And it's the easy question because we don't know, right? There is, however, something to be said about being aware, especially in the time in which we live where it seems as though since Israel became a nation again in 1948, prophecy may very well be unfolding right before our eyes. Naturally, I approach the following thoughts with my standard warning that we cannot know what we cannot know. Tomorrow, the entire geopolitical landscape might change. Everything could change tomorrow. Countries could appear, countries could disappear, and everything could be different. So this is all speculation. We have often seen this with the kingdom of Antichrist. People have speculated it was the League of Nations. Then they speculated it was the United Nations, which has a lot of good foundation. Now people are more confident saying it's the European Union. There's always that, that uh, recognition of uh, Antichrist and its connection and the connection to the Catholic Church as an institution. All of these things exist and things are changing as we're seeing geopolitics change, and we need to account for that. We need to allow for that. But just as with Antichrist's kingdom, which centers clearly in Rome somehow, right? 
clearly there's something about the Roman Empire, whether that's a revived Roman Empire literally, or whether we're talking about the Western world, which is the theory that I propose generally. There is something there having to do with Rome, and we know that, and that's an anchor point again in, in the Bible. In the same way, there are some pretty definitive things in the names that are mentioned here. We know that Gog and Magog and Meshech and Tubal were people groups well north of Israel. Generally speaking, the evidence is there to equate Magog with Russia, with Ukraine, perhaps with the other Slavic countries in Eastern Europe and Western Asia. I would, however, caution you in this. I would challenge one of the manners. If, if you hear, if you listen to dispensational uh, teachers who are talking about the end times, that you'll hear several names come up. One of them that you'll hear is Meshech, and they'll connect it to Moscow. And then you'll hear Rosh, and they'll connect it to Russia. I don't like that. I think that's bad interpretation. We don't take the name of something a, uh, a long time ago and say because they both start with M, they must correlate. Doesn't work that way. And Rosh is even more controversial. The word Rosh is actually when when we read in Ezekiel thirty-eight that that Mega or that Gog would be the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. In certain translations, you don't see the word chief there. You see him being the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. That word Rosh is found 538 times in the New Testament to mean one that is exalted or a chief. However, in certain translations, and, and not even a plurality of them, instead of, instead of translating it chief prince, they translate it prince and they make Rosh a, a proper name which connects nicely to Russia, but isn't even a solid translational step as far as the text is concerned. And so when you hear people talking about Rosh, I would, that, that one we re, need to be excessively skeptical of because that word is not translated Rosh anywhere else in the Bible. It's translated chief or highest or any of the 538 times it's used in, in the Hebrew Old Testament. And yet in this one time, they take it out of that context and they make it Rosh, which does sound nicely like Russia. And the worst part about these interpretive muddiness is that we don't need it. There's plenty of reason for us to assume that the Russia, Ukraine, uh, Armenia, Georgia, that these are the nations being spoken of without doing disservice to the text. There's plenty of reason. Now, is there, I mean, is it definitive? No, it's not definitive. But the fact that Meshech and Tubal and Magog, the fact that, that Torgarma and Gomer are all well north of Israel, above Syria and, and Assyria at that time in history, lends itself nicely to this interpretation that the, uh, that the area that we're currently calling Russia, the Ukraine, Turkey, Syria, along with the Slavic countries in Eastern Europe and Western Asia, that this is the most natural region for these uh, for Gog of Magog to derive. And current geopol geopolitics, as, as uh, unreliable as it may be, confirm this. If we talk about current geopolitics right now, current geopolitics, we are seeing this coalition coming into being. We are seeing Russia and Iran and Syria and Ethiopia and Libya. We are seeing these nations 
forming strategic alliances against a general, a friend of my enemy is my friend alliance of Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Israel. Russia, of course, with, with the, the pull out of Syria not too long ago uh, in the United States, it became very clear just how, how important that was to Russia. Russia has always been, been very active in Syria. We see that geopolitical connection. We know of the geopolitical connections between Russia and Iran. We, we can see the geopolitical connections between uh, Russia and Libya and Ethiopia. And so the idea of Gog of Magog being that sort of an alliance, which would have been impossible, by the way, like 60 years ago. We would have said no chance. But it's actually kind of coming into being here. So geopolitics is giving us no reason to ignore Russia and the coalition nations as it relates to who Gog of Magog might be. But remember, so much has changed. We are in very unique days. 75 years ago, so many elements of end times prophecy as we understand them seemed impossible. The idea, Israel had no claim to the land of promise before 1948. Israel was remade out of nothing at that time. No one would have ever, ever assumed that would, would take place. Is, Iran was a Western ally until the 1970s. Russia was geopolitically insignificant until the mid-1900s. Now everything is on its head, and as it's on its head, it fits quite nicely with what the scriptures seem to be teaching. And so, who is Gog of Magog? Well, I, I don't have any problem linking Gog of Magog. I don't know, we don't know who Gog is, the leader. Um, but I have no problem linking Magog, Meshech, Tubal, Torgama, Gomer to the Eastern Bloc countries, to Russia, to the Ukraine, to Armenia, to Georgia. I don't see any interpretive problem with that. But remember, history might change tomorrow. That will give us deeper context into what's going on here. We have all of this then. What do we do with it? We're done with Gog and Magog. We're done with Revelation 20 after this week. What do we do with this? What do we do when we read these headlines and they seem to confirm prophecy? What do we do uh, when, when we have these questions in our mind and, and, and what is it calling us unto? Well, we've talked about it so many times, but let's just establish it this way. Look outward, look inward, look upward. As God's people, we are never called to look outward into the world just to judge them or just to know what's going on. We can, and we indeed should be aware of the world that is around us, particularly that we might live in this world in a manner that is right. But looking outward affords us an opportunity to take what we know, to take what we learn, to take what we understand, and to turn it inward. Today we looked out and we saw a gathering coalition that looks quite a bit like the last day's coalition of Gog of Magog. We see what's happening in Russia and Syria and Iran and, and, and we see what's happening geopolitically and we fit that into our interpretive uh, worldview and we say this makes a lot of sense. And that could cause us to be troubled. But it shouldn't. Much to the contrary, we do this to be aware and then we turn these lessons inward and ask the needful question, how do I relate to these circumstances? As God's word proves more and more true with each successive generation of history, what am I doing with the parts of God's word that talk, 
to me about today. Is God's word the lamp unto my feet and the light unto my path today? As God's word is becoming more and more confirmed to be true with every geopolitical event, well, if we see the truths of God's word as it relates to Gog of Magog, as it relates to the 70th week of Daniel, as it relates to the renewal of Israel and the regathering of Israel, then do you think love thy neighbor is true? Then do you think let no bitterness, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice? Do you think that's true? Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Is that part true? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Is that part true? See, if, if it's true, if we're seeing it unfold, it ought to well in us a renewed motivation toward the parts that speak to our today. We know that the world cannot be properly understood apart from the worldview that is rooted in the Word of God. But have we decided, having all of this knowledge bumping around in our heads, that we're going to forge our own path, undergird by my own priorities, my own ideas? Well, this would be a mistake. In this generation, as it has always been, it would be a mistake. So it is that our look outward, seeing what's going on in the world around us, seeing what's going on geopolitically, seeing the possible coalition of Gog of Magog forming, seeing the kingdom of Antichrist, as we talked about when we talked about um, Babylon, Mystery Babylon, seeing the kingdom of Antichrist and the way that it could so easily form, seeing it in the religious world, seeing it in the political world, seeing it in the economic world, seeing it all come together. We say, wow, the Bible is coming together just as it says. Then you know what else will come together just as it says? The wages of sin is death. What else will come together? Whosoever is not found written in the book of life is cast in the lake of fire. What else is going to be true? We will all be judged. All of those things are also going to come true. That's where we look inward. And then we look upward. We live this life in eager anticipation. Considering the events of the day, we're troubled by them in one sense, but there's an eager anticipation in the other Rather than dread or fear, we, we have tempered excitement because great is the Lord who has worked all things together for His good and we are on His side and if God be for us, who can be against us? Great is His plan for history which will culminate in His glorification, in His praise, in us ruling and reigning with Him in righteousness that gives us confidence to take each step and to go about it in joy. And so let this cheer us let this motivate us. Let this direct us in the way that we should go. Let us look outward so that we might look inward, so that we might look upward and place our hope in the Lord who is our God. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.